Newstalk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. Recent uprisings in both Sri Lanka and the Netherlands have a common denominator. They are driven by the Green Movement. So writes Larry Behrens. He is the communications director for an organization. It's a nonprofit called Power the Future. It advocates for... Uh, America's energy workers. He also previously worked as the comms director for New Mexico Governor Susana Martinez. Welcome to the program, Larry. How are you? I'm great, Pete. Thanks so much for having me. Certainly, certainly. So uh, how exactly uh, is the, well, the uprising in Sri Lanka, but also what the farmers protesting in the Netherlands, uh, how is this driven by the Green Movement? Yeah, it's it's a little complex, and I'll try to try to be quick about yeah, it. Yeah, if you could keep it really simple for me, just for my purposes. <laughs> <laughs> I know you'll understand. I know your audience will understand it. I'm just, just for time, trying to keep it quick. You know, the Green Movement went after, they find a critical element of the industries they don't like, whether it's the oil, natural gas industry, or in this case, the agriculture industry, and they said, you can't use that anymore, and they go after it. And that's essentially what has happened. You know, Sri Lanka didn't manage their money well, and so they had to live off of loans. Well, the environmental movement came into the hedge funds and the people that give loans to countries, and they said, not only are we going to make sure, you know, your credit score is good and your financial practices, uh, we're going to throw environmental regulations in there, too, and you can't use nitrate. And nitrate was a critical element in the fertilizer that they were using for their food. And the Sri Lankan government, because they needed the loans, said, okay, we're going to get rid of nitrate. You can only use organic fertilizer. Well, lo and behold, and this was in April 2021, lo and behold, it didn't work. Their crop yield failed by at least half in Sri Lanka. By November, the government had reversed it. We don't care about the loan money. We have to get food on the shelves. But then by then, it was too late. And then the Green Movement went to the Netherlands, and they didn't have the power of the purse because the Netherlands had managed their money well, but they had the power of the government. And it's something we're very familiar with here in the United States. And they used you know, regulations to say, we're going to get nit- rid of nitrate for you all as well. And, well, we've seen how farmers in the Netherlands have responded to that. So they didn't let it get quite as far as they did in Sri Lanka. But in both cases, the environmental movement identified a critical element of the industry and said, you know what, we're just not going to let you use that anymore. And without any regard to the consequences for the people in both countries. Is it possible that they are good-hearted but stupid in this approach? No, it is absolutely strategic, and they are doing it in the case of Sri Lanka. They can do it right by holding their paychecks over their head. In the case of the Netherlands, they can do it to try to undermine industries that aren't politically favorable to their movements. You know, the for whatever reason, the environmental movement doesn't like agriculture, and they don't like oil and natural gas. They don't like the things that produce the critical elements of our society, and so they go after them. They find the thing that those industries can't live without and say, we're going to outlaw that. It's like, you know, Burger King going to McDonald's and saying, we're going to outlaw Big Macs. And, uh, you know, McDonald's has to get rid of it. Well, that's central to what they do. And so when they do this, it is completely intentional. And it's not uh, for the the greater good by any way, shape, or form. So um, organic fertilizer doesn't work as well as nitrogen in fertilizer or something? Well, in in Sri Lanka, it didn't, right? Their yields went down, and they knew it would. And the farmers in the Netherlands knew the same would happen to them. And that's why they stood up and protested and said, we will lose our farm. And, uh, you know, again, it's awfully convenient, right? So if you tell a farmer you can't use this critical element, farmer goes out of business, farmer has to sell their farm. Well, who's conveniently there to buy it? Who's conveniently there for pennies on the dollar 
to scoop up that land, to get rid of that multi-generational business that that family had. And it just is all too convenient for it. And, and that's the point. It's the green movement is the tool, but it's really about eliminating competition and enriching people. And the green movement is just the tool that they use to do it. Have you ever heard the term watermelon for people in the green movement? No. Green, green on the outside? And red on the inside. Mm. In that, I mean, it I, really is. We're, we're to the point where, you know, it, 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 that when we could say of the green movement, it's very much like communism and socialism in that it's failed everywhere it's been tried. Right. And we've seen that across the world. So you mentioned earlier that you, you said for some reason uh, a lot of people in the green movement don't like agriculture. And I find, like, that's – obviously there is some of that borne out in what you've just described. I think that's pretty clear. But I guess I'm like you. Why? Because it, it seems like they're always advocating for those things, like the green movement. Like, wouldn't it be being a good steward of the land and growing your food rather than raising, you know, animals for slaughter? It's better to have the row crops or whatever. Like, it just mm-hmm. that seems weird to me. Why would they be anti-egg? You know, I think it's it's wholesale political. Hmm. Just generally speaking, of course, not everyone can be painted with the same brush. But generally speaking, the agriculture community fights against globalism. They're a self-sufficient group of people. They fight for nationalism for wherever their country is. And those go against what the Green Movement is trying to do across the world. But your point is a very fair one. If it is about the you know, the Lord's green earth, and it is about saving the environment. Why do they go after just agriculture and not the airline industry? Well, is it because everyone in the green movement loves jetting around to far off, you know, uh, resort destinations so that they can hold their conferences to tell the rest of us how to live? And so when really, when you're going after one and not the other, then you start to question, it's not really about the environment. It's about going after people who you think are politically different than you and trying to attack their way of life. So um, you write also, you've, uh, uh, my guest is Larry Behrens. He's got a piece at The Daily Caller, dailycaller.com. Uh, green greed is the real toxic element. And you write, um, which I thought was a, a bright spot. I think that's kind of encouraging, right? The Supreme Court ruling in the West Virginia versus EPA ruling. Uh, do, do we take any encouragement from that? We, we do. You know, when the Supreme Court has come out and said, you know, and, and what it did was it said to agencies essentially under the president said you can't go out there and just do what you want if you're going to do something so big as to shut down plants and to force you know transition to electric grids you have to get a specific law from congress that says you can do that you just can't use this mandate that says we're the epa we protect the environment so we could do anything that involves with the environment but on the same token you know in no time flat Biden's department of uh, transportation started going after regulating vehicles in the states. And, you know, just today, Joe Biden is considering uh, declaring a climate emergency to give himself even more broad powers. So was it a bright spot? Absolutely. Is the Biden administration adhering to that law? No. It looks like they're going to choose which laws they like and which ones they don't. Just like, you know, you and I could. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Like if if I was, uh, you know, on video with crack and hookers and guns, I'm sure... Uh, no, okay. Same thing would happen to me as his son. Um, anything else on this that you want to add that you think is important or interesting that we haven't covered? You know, I would just uh, recommend to the good people there in your audience, you know, pay attention. And I know, I know they are, but pay attention to your electric bill. Pay attention to where your power comes from and your food comes from. And 
don't, you know, yes, we pay attention to Washington and your senators and your Congress people. That's important. But your state senators, your city council members, and your school board members as well, because so much of this installation of the green movement starts at these levels so that by the time people are older, they don't see that there's any other choice other than windmills and solar panels, which are unreliable, intermittent, and expensive. And, you know, lo and behold, as they're finding out in Europe, they don't work. Larry Barron's the communications director for Power the Future, a nonprofit that advocates for America's energy workers. Uh, he's also uh, previously the comms director for New Mexico Governor Martinez. And you can follow him, Larry Barron's, on Twitter or uh, and uh, Larry at PowerTheFuture.com. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Pete, so great to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Take care. And uh, you can read his piece at DailyCaller.com called Green Greed is the Real Toxic Element. All right, a News Talk 1110 and 993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. You can also email Pete at We were talking earlier about road use taxes as well. Um, I got an email from John who says, Pete, my car is driven every year in at least five to six different states. Why should the mileage that I rack up in those states go to North Carolina? That's a really great question. That's a problem with the M-buff, with the M-buff. Wasn't that the Hanson song? Okay. Greg, welcome to the program. Hello, Greg. How are you? Pretty good, Pete. How are you doing? I am all right, sir. Hey, question for you. Now, all the state-owned vehicles that are used and run all over the, all over the place, who's going to pay for the mileage on them? Is the employee who has issued that vehicle and drives that vehicle have to uh, pay for those uh, road use mileage, or I don't think the state should be exempt from it. No, I, I suspect that the state would itself, basically. <laughs> With our tax money. Right, and they, whatever the administrative cost of that would be, would be borne by the taxpayers, yes. But I, I, I suspect, because uh, unless maybe they exempt themselves and they don't put the monitors in the vehicles if they're state-owned vehicles, I, I, I don't... That's the I don't understand operationally how you go about enacting that kind of a plan exactly. in people's then, private vehicles. I don't know how you do that. And then you get a long a long haul trucker that lives here in North Carolina, they run through to California and come back. Yeah, yeah, right. So to, meanwhile he stops and pays uh, the gas tax in every other state he goes into, and then he's going to get yep. nailed again by North Carolina, even though he didn't drive on those North Carolina roads, the mileage would accrue to his vehicle and uh, and not to the actual surfaces upon which he drove it. And that's another operational problem with the mm, buff idea. Yep. Yeah. Uh, All right. Uh, Gre- All right, Pete, you have a good day. All right, buddy, you too. Appreciate it, Greg. Take care. Uh, drive safe. Yeah, this was the idea over at the John Locke Foundation. They wrote about this. Uh, they've been longtime uh, proponents of this idea to do a MBUF, uh, mileage-based user fee, MBUF. Uh, it would, you know, people would pay proportionate to their road consumption and the potential damage they do to roads. And part of the problem here is that cars are getting more efficient. And you got people that are driving electron or electric vehicles, and they're not even paying the gas tax. So how do you fund transportation needs when these revenues are, if not falling, they're at least plateauing? 
So uh, they got to come up with different ideas. And what the state legislature did was they're just going to redirect 2% out of the sales tax revenue. And it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 190 something million dollars, I think, for the first year. Where was it? Yeah, 193 million dollars. Um, and then that's 2% of the sales tax revenue. And then it, uh, next year, it'll go up to 6%, and it'll stay at 6% for the future. We don't know for how long, obviously, but I don't know. It looks like it's going to generate somewhere then in the neighborhood of about $600 million for that fund. But the sales tax is regressive. People who, right, people who are spending money on uh, purchases that are uh, in lower socioeconomic brackets, they uh, obviously are spending more of their proportionate uh, salary towards or, or income towards these uh, purchased goods and services. So it hurts them worse. Now, these are just the revenues. They're not increasing the sales tax rate. That is, right? So they're not increasing the sales tax rate. They're just taking revenue that's already being generated by that sales tax, and they're sending it to transportation. Um, what was the – oh, here's a uh, another email – this is from Susan. I would like to expand on one of Larry Barron's points. Organic fertilizer. Anybody who wants to go the organic route realizes quickly that it's going to take a long time to rebuild the soil from the damage caused by chemicals. The chemicals use up the hummus. Wait, is that like the hummus that we eat? Or is that two M's? Is this humus? The hummus? Anyway, in the soil... Uh, burn it up, actually, in the last few years, more and more farmers know how they have been manipulated by Monsanto, Bayer, Cargill, Syngentas of the globe. These companies hate regenerative agriculture because it reduces the market for their fertilizers. The Green New Deal is fake, too. It's not green, and it's not a deal. Well, then what do we... So, look, I understand like, if you want to farm organic, that's... That's fine. Like you go right ahead and do it. I, I think the problem is that the government forced people to do it, and in forcing them to do it, it was a shock to the system. It was not. It was not a conservative approach. It was a radical approach. Right. It was upend the entire farming system, ban one product, force people to do this other thing, and then the yields are not as good. And. You can say that's because of the chemicals. You could say it's because of the organic fertilizer. But had they not shifted radically, had they, you know, maybe taken a quarter of the fields or, you know, 20% of your of your farmland and you you start doing the organic on that. And then once you, re, you know, rehab that soil and that's now producing, then you move to another one. You do it over a gradual period of time so as to not shock the system. That's conservatism. It's actually one of the first principles. <laughs> News Talk 1110-993-WBT. President Joe Biden says he's going to take strong something. Uh, I don't remember. No, he's going to take strong executive action on climate change following the apparent failure of Senate Democrats to reach a deal on major green energy legislation. The pledge is a response to news that Senator Joe Manchin, who just won't do anything we want him to. Joe Manchin, a centrist who has been the main holdout in the Democrat-only reconciliation process, said he is not prepared to support new climate spending and tax hikes right now because of 
high inflation. Washington Examiner reporting Biden's statement, quote, if the Senate will not move to tackle the climate crisis and strengthen our domestic clean energy industry, I will take strong executive action to meet this moment. What kind of executive action? Strong action. Like what? It'll be strong. That's all you need to know right now. Just strong. Like me. Strong president. Reports published Thursday said that Manchin resolved not to support new taxes or spending on climate change mitigation measures as part of the spending deal that Democrats are negotiating, setting off anger and frustration among colleagues who had been negotiating with him and environmental groups. Manchin disputed the characterization that he pulled the plug entirely on negotiations, telling a West Virginia Virginia radio host on Friday that he told Chuck Schumer that he wanted to see July's inflation numbers before committing to any kind of a deal. And for some reason, when he said he wanted to see the inflation numbers, everybody just assumed that that meant the deal was going to be tanked. (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) When you have that little confidence... That the ship is getting righted, then I guess it is sort of a deal killer. Like, look, guys, I'll go along with it. I just want want to see what, you know, what inflation numbers are for July before I commit to any kind of new spending. Daggummit, Manchin. Why can't you just go along with this massive new spending bill? Then it's also going to cripple your home state and all your voters. And come on, man. I'm just channeling my inner Joe Biden. So I'm sure this will be totally legal. Um, <laughs> just that's unbelievable, but not really, not not really unbelievable. I gotta, I gotta try to work that word out of my vocabulary. But it's been in it for so long because for a long time in my life, things were kind of unbelievable. But now, not so much. Right here, here's another one. Um, where did this one do? Do 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 do. Here it is, Merriam-Webster dictionary. They changed the definition of female. Just stealth edit it. Number one, of relating to or being the sex that typically has the capacity to bear young or produce eggs. So sex is not gender, remember. Okay. So female. This is not women. This is female. Female. Of relating to or being the sex that typically has the capacity to bear young or produce eggs. And then they have a definition, botany-wise, you know, having or producing only pistols or pistolate flowers. And then, definition 1B, having a gender identity that is the opposite of male. <laughs> so, you're defining... Okay, so now female is gender, too? Because I thought sex and gender were different. I thought... No, this is why I always joke around, and it's not really a joke anymore, right? But it started as a joke. It started as a skit, as a bit. But now it's true, right? Sex is not gender unless it needs to be for this momentary issue. And then it can be the same, but then it won't be the same if I don't need it to be the same after that. It's a very clear standard here at play. And so that's what uh, Webster, Merriam-Webster has uh, decided to do. The woke folks at... Uh, merriamwebster.com i don't even know what the website is uh they, they they're playing along with the game so the words can mean whatever you need them to mean 
for whatever debate you're having at any given moment. And we're going to define it as the opposite of male. Okay, well, then what's male? It's the opposite of female, obviously. Duh. See, I was about to say unbelievable. But it's not. I'm just going to have to start saying believable. Maybe I'll make that happen. I don't have a good record, though. I do not have a good record of making words stick, like uh, like cis-normative, cisgender, Latinx. I don't have that kind of power for some reason. I, I cannot just change the whole language virtually overnight. I've been working on the word votainer for years, and to me, there's no reason why that word should not be in common, uh, common use. No reason. It's the perfect word. Instead of top vote getter, you say votainer. It makes all the sense in the world. And I actually work in a business where I, I tell people use this word. It's politics. It's media. You could use this word. It works a lot better. And it's like people don't want to take the plunge. They don't want to use it. It's like, oh, it's just a made-up word. Look, man, all words are kind of made up to some degree, right? Especially nowadays. <laughs> so, votainer. But maybe, maybe I'll just start saying believable instead of unbelievable. All right, construction of toll lanes on traffic-clogged Independence Boulevard. It's been delayed by four years. Shocking. Oh, wait. Believable. With work now set to begin in 2030, according to North Carolina's 2024 through 2033 Transportation Improvement Plan, or the TIP. Charlotte Observer Joe Marasek writing, The North Carolina Department of Transportation plans to convert bus lanes to toll lanes or express lanes on a five-mile stretch of Independence Boulevard from 277 all the way down to Wallace Road and eventually all the way out to 485 in Matthews. Uh, according to the latest state estimate, that stretch of toll lanes from 277 to west of Idlewild Road is expected to run about $96 million. So go out there and buy a bunch of stuff and help pay for this project. The state originally planned to begin buying right away for the stretch uh, from 277 to Idlewild Road. They were going to start doing that in like a year or two. And then they were hoping to start construction in 26. Um, the DOT's recently released draft bumps the start of the acquisition of right-of-way and land. So that now slips by like three years and construction slips by four. Uh, they blame the delay on the rising cost of materials and labor. Would that be inflation? No completion date is still to be determined, uh, which I think is basically like every road project in Charlotte. That's, uh, the state plans to convert the bus lanes on Independence uh, between 277 and Idlewild Road to two-way toll lanes, meaning one in each direction. Now, I'm going to date myself here. Um, I remember when people on the east side complained that they were getting bus service as part of the, the grand transportation plan, they were not happy about that because they said this rapid bus service, is, they wanted a train. And rapid bus service is not the same because bus stops can be picked up and moved. They wanted the permanency and the development that comes with train station uh, projects. That's what they wanted. And so now I see that the, uh, that the line is going to get turned into, into a hot lane, toll lane, which... I don't know. I guess we got do we do we vote do we vote Roy Cooper out over this? Is that how that works? I'm not sure. What's the standard? 
All right, so construction of this stretch of uh, Independence Boulevard is going to get turned into a tow lane. The stretch will include another general purpose or free lane in each direction, totaling three general purpose lanes plus an express lane and an auxiliary lane in each direction. Now, my question is, what happens when it gets to the bridge at CarMax down there? Because if you're not going to widen that stupid bridge down there, then really, what's the point? It's just going to back all the way up into East Charlotte, right? It goes down to two lanes to cross that tiny old little bridge. <laughs> Ugh, hate it. Um, then there's this. Um, the National Transportation Research Nonprofit. TRIP is what they call themselves. I don't know why. It's nonprofit. It should be called TRIN, right? National, actually, it should be called the NTRIN, a national transportation research nonprofit. Anyway, um, they put out a uh, study, a sur- yeah, study of the traffic fatalities, and North Carolina traffic fatalities went up 18% during the pandemic. What? Talk about counterintuitive. Believable. Now, that actually, was, uh, this one is actually unbelievable. I, that, I found this one hard to believe. U.S. traffic fatalities rose dramatically in 2020 despite pandemic-induced drop in vehicle travel. And it continued to increase in 2021 as people got stupider at an alarming rate. I'm sorry. No, it says as travel rebounded. A report released today by TRIP, a national transportation research nonprofit, entitled Addressing America's Traffic Safety Crisis, Examining the causes of increasing U.S. traffic fatalities and identifying solutions to improve road user safety. By April 2020, as most activity was curtailed in an effort to slow the spread, U.S. vehicle travel was 40% lower than the previous April 2019. But by October 2020, U.S. vehicle travel had rebounded to basically almost the same levels as a year prior. In 2021, it was still a little bit below the 2019 levels, okay? So you have this big drop-off, and then it rebounds about six months after slow the spread, and then, or bend the curve, and then uh, last year, it goes up a little bit. It's almost on par with where it was before the pandemic. The number of traffic fatalities increased, increased 11%. Roughly on pace with the 10% increase in vehicle travel during the same time. The highest number recorded since 2005. The traffic fatality rate in 2021 rose to 1.35 fatalities per 100 million vehicle miles traveled. I know I'm doing a lot of numbers, which is terrible radio, but there you have it. That Them's be the stats. Bicycle and pedestrian fatalities also increased significantly over pre-pandemic levels. The significant increase in fatalities, they say, since the onset of the pandemic appears largely related to increased risks being taken by drivers. Increased risks. Isn't that weird? Um, Of the drivers who remained on the road, some engaged in riskier behavior, including speeding, failure to wear seatbelts, and driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs. 
the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety drew similar conclusions about the role of increased risks being taken by drivers during the pandemic. A survey asked whether their level of driving had decreased, remained the same, or increased, and whether they had engaged in a variety of risky behaviors. And the AAA found that the drivers who maintained or increased their travel levels from pre-COVID, they indicated that they were more likely to engage in riskier driving behavior. Quote, it is possible that many of the individuals who are willing to travel and even increase their travel despite the health risks associated with the pandemic, we're already more willing than average to take other risks. So so I read this, and here's what I come away thinking. Okay, is it that the people on the roads were already more risk tolerant because they were ignoring the stay-home orders, right? So you have a greater population of riskier people. Or is it the reduced traffic volume? that makes people engage in more riskier behavior. So what's is one causing the other, right? Is it is it I'm already a risky person, hence I'm out on the roads driving around during a pandemic because I don't care, come and get me covid and uh I, and so I'm going to engage in those types of behaviors or is it oh wow, I'm a really good driver, but look, I have the whole road to myself now and so I'm going to go really 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 fast. And then I'm going to wrap my car around a tree. Because I'm also drunk taking and, and on drugs because I'm also taking those risks. Alcohol-involved crashes rose by 9%. Unrestrained occupants uh, increased. Number of those who died from it increased. Speeding-related traffic crashes climbed 11% as well. And the severity of traffic crashes also increased. As I said, people got stupider at an alarming rate.